The theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior. There was a group of first century Jewish Christians that had come out of Judaism, put their faith in Jesus Christ, and because of pressure and persecution, they were being tempted to turn back to the old ways of Old Testament, Old Covenant Judaism. And so the author, who is unknown to us, wrote this letter, 13 chapters, with the agenda and the desire to encourage these believers to not look back into the things that they came out of, but to press forward in the things that they had learned and seen in Christ Jesus. And so systematically, he is building a case for Christ by holding Jesus side by side with each of the Old Testament entities that made Judaism what it was, and then showing that Jesus is superior. And so Jesus is superior to the prophets. The prophets were good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Joshua and to the promised land and to the rest that the Sabbath and the promised land brought to the people of God. Jesus is superior to the priesthood that they so relied upon in the Old Testament as their attachment to God. And that's where we find ourselves now as we're in chapter 7. The writer is in the middle of this section talking about the superiority of Christ to the Old Testament priesthood. And in in the section that we left off in, in chapter 6, he makes a comparison between Jesus and this mysterious Old Testament figure by the name of Melchizedek. And I know that it's a mouthful, but it's an important theme, and the writer draws from that now to show that Jesus is a superior and, uh, and more lasting priest than what they had in the Old Testament times. And so he, he said in chapter 6, verse 20, just the last verse of, uh, of the last chapter, he said, Whither the forerunner runner is entered, even Jesus, who is made a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the remarkable thing about this uh, man Melchizedek and about the chapter that is before us that is all about uh, this comparison between Jesus Christ and Melchizedek is how very little the Bible actually says about this Melchizedek. His entire Old Testament appearance encompasses about four verses of Old Testament Scripture. And it took place in the days of Abraham, after Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot from a conglomeration of five kings that had invaded Sodom and taken the people there captive, Abraham armed the 318 servants that were in his house. And he went in and he took on this combined military of five kingdoms. And he not only won the battle, but he rescued all of the hostages and took all of the spoils away from them that they had gathered in their conquest. And it tells us there in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, and this is the whole encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek. It says that the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And then in verse 18, and as that's happening, it says that Melchizedek, no mention of him prior to this, 
in the Bible giving us any indication of who this man is. It just throws him right into the scene. That Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him tithes of all. So he took one-tenth of the spoils that he had carried away in the battle, and he gave them to this man Melchizedek as a tithe. And then it, it goes on, and, and um, he, he has an encounter then with the king of Sodom. But that's the entirety of Melchizedek's interaction with humankind in the entire Old Testament is this brief three verses, 18, 19, and 20, where he meets Abraham, blesses him, prophesies over his life, receives tithes from him, and then he's gone. He's no longer on the scene. And he's not mentioned again in the Bible until Psalm 110, verse 4, where out of nowhere he is mentioned just one more time, where it says, very mysteriously, almost without context, that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And strangely enough, as, as puzzling as that verse is, that becomes the key to understanding and unlocking the entirety of what this whole Melchizedek thing is all about. Because what we understand is that Psalm 110 was a psalm that was prophetic about the coming Messiah. Meaning that when Messiah would come, he would be declared to be a priest, but he would be a priest according to a different order, the order of Melchizedek. Now, what we have in Hebrews chapter 7 now, as the writer is showing that Jesus is a superior priest to those priests that were in the Old Testament, what we have in this chapter is we have an exposition of Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. The writer of Hebrews takes those three verses, and what he gives to us, and this is amazing, I hope you get something from this, even though it's kind of subtopic, is that he gives us an inductive Bible study about Melchizedek, so that we'll understand who he is and how he applies to Christ. You say, what do you mean? What is inductive Bible study? Inductive Bible study is the best way that I know for an individual person to approach an understanding of the scriptures. Inductive Bible study is basically looking at the scriptures with three goals in mind. Number one is observation. Very simply, what does it say? What is this text saying to us? That's step one, pulling out the, the facts of the text. Then step two is interpretation. What does it mean? Now that I know what it says, I ask the question, what does it mean? Who, what, where, when, why, how? I begin to ask those questions and pull meaning out of the text. I establish facts based upon what I observed. Observation, then interpretation. What does it mean? And then finally, stage three, which is the most important, is application. What does this mean to me? Why is this in the Bible? What does this do for my faith? What is this asking me to do in my life? How does this apply to me in a way that this becomes not just Bible page, but it becomes spiritual life, the application of the text? And so what the writer of Hebrews does right here is he takes these three verses in Genesis, 
And that one verse in Psalms, and then he gives to us an inductive Bible study. He takes the first three verses of chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, and he gives us observation. He just tells us what the text says. Then in verses 4, all the way up through verse 24, he gives us the interpretation. That is, he draws out the facts or the things that we can learn and understand based on Genesis 14. And then, beginning in verse 25, he gives to us the application, the so what. What does all this have to do with you and me as it relates to our walk with God today? And so that's what we have in the text that's before us. Now, one more comment on that, and then we'll get into the substance of it. But remember our studies in the, in the past couple of weeks, how the writer of Hebrews has been a little bit nervous about approaching the subject because he said it was meaty, M-E-A-T-Y, meaty, meaning it's a little bit complex. It's a little bit hard to understand. He's going to take four verses of the Old Testament and unwrap miles of truth with it. And it can be a little bit complex. But here's what I love about it is that he takes the complexity of all this stuff and he shows how very simple it actually is. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the Bible, is no matter how complex some of the things can be that are in it, it always points back to the simplicity of what's on the surface. And so we see tonight that this is a powerful and meaningful concept and text but it has a very simple and very powerful application and meaning to you and me that we'll see at the end of the chapter. And so we begin in verse 1 with just the observation concerning Melchizedek and who he was. He says in verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without mother, I'm sorry, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. Now, for context first, I want you to see the thought process of the author in what he's saying right here. I know many of you are using the screen tonight as your Bible, and so I don't, I hope you'll, you know, the screen can keep up with my words in terms of seeing this. It's very easy to see if you look down at your Bible, if you have it with you. But I want you to see his thought in this. Here's what he's trying to say in verse one. He says, for this Melchizedek, and then there's a comma. He says, for this Melchizedek, comma, and then everything he says after that, down to the last four words of verse 3, is all in parentheses. So if you were to take just what he's trying to say, he's saying, for this Melchizedek abides a priest continually. The first three words of the passage, and then the last four words of the passage, that's his thought. For this Melchizedek abides a priest continually. That's the context of everything that we're going to see in the chapter. Now, everything that he says between those two phrases in verses 1, 2, and 3 are just facts about Melchizedek. 
And what he gives to us are five facts that you can pull right out of the text in Genesis chapter 14. The first of those facts that he gives to us there, number one, is that this man Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He tells us that in verse one. Uh, um, yes, he says, for he was this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of the most high God. Now, the reason why that's significant is because that should cause a red flag to go up in the mind of any Jewish reader that is trying to understand these things. And the reason why there's a red flag is because it was illegal. It was unlawful. It was against the will and the command of God in the Old Testament for anyone under the Levitical system to be both a king and a priest. It was forbidden. You couldn't be both a king and a priest. It was either or. The priests came exclusively from the tribe of Levi, and the kings came from the tribe of what? Come on, say it loud. Come on, Hunter. Judah, right. Judah, the kings came from Judah. They were the descendants of David. And it was forbidden for a king to enter into the office of a priest, and a priest never had the entitlement to become a king. They were separate offices. Twice it happened that a king tried to intrude into the office of a priest. Once was with the man Uzziah, who was a king. He was a good king, 52 years a good king, but he got lifted up with pride. And he went in and he sought to offer. And the priests forbade him. They said, don't do it. It's unlawful. You shouldn't. But he said, do, you don't tell me what to do. And he went in and did it anyways. And before he even came out, he had leprosy. God quickly judged and said, no, this is not my will. The other man was Saul, King Saul, the one that was before David. Remember, Samuel said, wait for me for seven days. And Saul got impatient and he went and he offered Anyways, and because of it, Samuel said, herein you have done foolishly in that you have not obeyed God. God has rejected you from being the king. It was forbidden for anyone to be both a priest and a king. But concerning this man Melchizedek, he was both. And the point of bringing that to the attention is to show that he is obviously different. That there's a difference between the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of the Levites in the Old Testament. The second fact that is brought up in these three verses is the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He says there that he um, blessed Abraham while he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. He prophesied and prayed blessing over Abraham's life. The third fact that he gives concerning this encounter is that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of all. The fourth fact concerning Melchizedek here in the text is his name. He tells us that the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That if you just take the name Melchizedek and interpret it, that's what it means. It means that he's the king of righteousness. And he also tells us there that he was the king of Salem. That is, his title was that he was the king of the city of Salem. And Salem means Peace. Therefore, he's the king of peace. So this man, Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And he's the priest of the Most High God. Now, for those of you that are into the Bible, this gives us incredible insights into the latitude that we have in understanding what a text is seeking to reveal to us. 
Do you see how even the names of the people and the places bear great significance in what the meaning of the passage is, is meant to and supposed to be? I would recommend, if you're serious about the Word of God, get yourselves a Bible names dictionary. I have one as part of the reference material on the back of my Bible. There's, a, uh, there's a, an index that just tells you the definition of every name in the Bible, whether it's a person, a river, a city, a country, a town. Whatever the name is, it tells you the meaning. And I found that to be so helpful in, in, in gaining understanding about what God is seeking to say within a passage. But we're told concerning his name that it's king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And then finally, the fifth thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us concerning this man Melchizedek is concerning the terms of his priesthood. There in verse 3, he says that he um, is without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. That is, he has no pedigree. There's no posterity. He didn't have some line of kings uh, and priests that he descended from. There's no one that came after him in the Bible. He, he stands alone. He has no beginning and no end, at least in, in the shadow of this. Uh, and that in all of that, he becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus. He is like unto the Lord, who in the same way stands alone in his priesthood, absolutely and completely. Now, there are some that uh, that believe that Melchizedek was actually Jesus Christ. That this was a, a, a time when Jesus showed up in the Old Testament, which does happen from time to time as you read the scriptures, and that this was one of those times. That's very much a possibility. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were seeking to uh, accuse him, he said to them, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. And it could very well be that Jesus was speaking of this encounter right here. When Jesus said that Abraham saw me, it could very well be that this was an Old Testament picture of Christ, but not necessarily. It says here that he was made like unto the Son of God. So it's a possibility that this was just a priest and a king of that order, and he, he's a type of Christ and the whole thing. You can choose to believe uh, whatever you want concerning who Melchizedek was, but I figured I would give you the argument so you have something to talk about tomorrow morning at breakfast. You know, was it Jesus or was it just a man? Discuss. You know, you have the, the liberty and the option to do that. And so he gives to us the interpretation, I'm sorry, the, the observation just of those verses in Genesis and the things that we can draw forth out of it. And now he moves as we get into verse 4 into the interpretation. What can we now conclude based upon the facts that have been presented to us in those verses? And there's essentially two things in these verses that he wants us to understand moving forward uh, in things. And the first of these things is that he wants us to see very clearly that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And that's important uh, for, for the, the case that he's building concerning the, the superiority of Christ on things, that he is greater than Abraham. And so he begins in verse 4. He says, now consider how great this man was, speaking of Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth or the tithe of the spoils. 
And verily, or truly, they that are of the sons of Levi, that is, the Levites, the priests under the old covenant system, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. In other words, the people were commanded under the old covenant system to give their tithe, the tenth of all of their harvest, of all of their flocks, the increase of all that they had. They were to bring their tithe and they were to present it to the priests. He's saying that was the law. They had to bring it to the Levites. But even Abraham, who was greater than the Levites, he paid tithes to this man Melchizedek. He says in verse 6, But he whose descent, speaking of Melchizedek, is not counted from them, that is the Levites, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, meaning there's never an exception to this rule, the less is blessed of the better. So in that Melchizedek spoke blessing over Abraham's life, it's without any controversy or contradiction that he was better than or greater than Abraham. Abraham was subservient to Melchizedek. And here, he says in verse 8, men that die receive tithes, speaking of the Levites. But there, speaking of Melchizedek, he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. And as I may so say, furthermore, he says, Levi also, the father of the priesthood in the Old Testament, who receives tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, I don't know about you. How many, how many of you, you just had your minds blown by the Bible? You know, when you, when you look at, look at what he just drew out in just like five or six verses from those three little verses in Genesis that we just read. I mean, he's talking about how Levi tithed before he was born because he was still, he existed in the mind of God in the loins of Abraham. That in God's mind, Levi tithed to Melchizedek before he was even born by a long period of time. That's remarkable. It's amazing the things that are, are here that are laid out before us in the whole thing. For, for, for what's the point now that he's trying to make? He's saying that, listen, in that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and that Abraham and Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, it is clear that Melchizedek is a greater man than Abraham and Levi. And that's important to understand. He's a superior priest. He's a higher priest even than Aaron and the high priests of the Old Covenant, Old Testament system. The other um, thing that the writer of Hebrews, the second conclusion uh, in terms of our interpretation that he wants to bring us to in verses 11 all the way through verse 24 is that Melchizedek is the priest over a greater covenant than the covenant of the Levites. So not only is he greater than Abraham and Levi, but he's the priest of a greater covenant than Levi was a priesthood over. And so he develops that beginning in verse 11. He says, if therefore perfection, and he's talking about salvation, 
He's talking about the process by which a sinner is forgiven of their sins and brought into a right standing with God. So that God looks at the sinner's life and he says, you have been declared perfect and righteous because of something that's been done on your behalf. That's what he's talking about when he says perfection. And he says, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, the old covenant system, sacrifices, sacraments, laws, feasts, mikvahs, washings, all of those things that they did in the Old Testament system, if those things brought perfection, for under it the people received the law, then what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now think with me. I understand this is a touch technical, but just hang with me. It's not that bad. When did David write Psalm 110? Was it before the the Levites were established as priests or after? After. It was way after, by like 400 years. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying to us here is that if you could be made perfect under the old covenant of the law, the system of Levi and Aaron and Moses, then what would be the point of God the Holy Spirit declaring that there would be another priesthood that would be raised up yet coming in the future? Why would there be a need for a greater priesthood if you could be saved and perfected under the system of the old priesthood? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't stand to reason. God would be foolish. He'd be contradicting himself, wasting material, wasting energy. And so he says in verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. If you're going to raise up a different order of priests, then it stands to reason that there's going to be a different covenant over which those priests will minister. It doesn't make sense to change the priesthood, but keep the law or the covenant the same. He says, for he of whom these things are spoken, that is, Jesus, through the order of Melchizedek, pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. Therefore, Jesus had no place under the priesthood of Levi. If Jesus is going to be declared a priest at all, he has to be a priest of a different order because he would be disqualified to be a priest after the order of Aaron. He was from the wrong tribe. He could have as the son of God, but not as the son of man. As the son of man, he was born into the tribe of Judah. It wouldn't have fulfilled all righteousness. And then in verse 15, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude or the, um, the paradigm or the picture of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So God is going to raise up a priest that is going to fulfill the order of which Melchizedek stood for. Who is made? Not after the law of a carnal commandment like Moses and Aaron and Levi, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Quoting again from Psalm 110, verse 4. For verily, he says in verse 18, there is a disannulling or a deauthorization of the commandment, that is the old covenant of the law, that went before because of the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law, the old covenant, made nothing perfect. Do you see that? Highlight those words. The old covenant of the law made nothing perfect. The only thing that the old covenant made perfect was that it made it perfectly clear that you and I could not keep that law and that we could not be made or declared righteous based upon the things that were contained in the law. In Romans chapter 3, actually let me even back up a little further. In Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans makes a case that there is not one person that has ever lived or that ever will live that can be declared righteous before God based upon their ability to keep God's law. And the natural question that arises when a person hears that, that the law can't save you, is what in the world then is the reason or the purpose for the law? Why would God give a set of commands that promises to save that it's impossible for me to keep and that could never really in reality save me? Why would God do that? Paul gives the answer in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says this very simply. He says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Meaning that what God's intention was in bringing forth the law was to reveal the fact that you and I are sinners and that we've fallen short of God's glory and God's standard of perfection. So we begin to read it. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall honor the Lord and keep holy his Sabbath day. You shall make no idols and there shall be no idolatry, nothing that you love in your life more than God. You shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet or lust even in your heart after something that is not yours. And one by one the commandments came. And when a a heart realizes the weight and the severity and the meaning of that law and what it requires of a human life, the logical and consistent place that it leads every single person is to the understanding that I am unholy, I am a sinner, and it is impossible for me to be saved based upon my ability to meet God's righteous requirements and standards. And that's where the law finishes the work that God intended for it to do. It cannot do anything more than reveal to a human life that that human life is not right in the sight of God. And after that, it can do nothing else. For the law made nothing perfect, he says in verse 19. That's it. He says, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which now we can draw near unto God. The fact that David said 400 years after that there arises another priest after the order of Melchizedek and that that priesthood is an eternal priesthood. For you are a priest forever. He says that brings in a better hope that there is something yet coming, a righteousness provided by God that the Levitical system could never match or meet on things. Now, the amazing thing about this new priesthood is that it deauthorizes 
the power and the standing of the old system. If there's a new priesthood that's raised up, then it negates and nullifies the old one. It's no longer the old, but it is exclusively the new. The bringing in of a better hope did. Inasmuch, verse 20, as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests, the Old Testament Levites, were made with it without an oath. They, they simply inherited their position as priests based upon their genealogy. If you were a descendant of Levi, you were entitled to the priesthood. If you were a direct descendant of Aaron and things fell out for you in the right way, then you could be the high priest. But that was it. There was no other thing other than your genealogy that qualified you to be a priest under the old covenant. There was no oath. But this, Melchizedek, with an oath by him that said unto him, you, the Lord swear and will not repent, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek and the priesthood that he represents is a higher priesthood than the priesthood of the old for those reasons. And that's what he concludes in verse 22. He says, by so much, by the, the fullness of these things, the fact that he was greater than Abraham, Melchizedek was, that he was greater than Levi, that he brought in a greater hope, that he was over a greater covenant, and that he himself had the endorsement of God. By all of these things was Jesus made a surety or an assurance of a better testament or a better covenant. And there's your word, that word better, superior, that keeps coming up over and over and over again. That because Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and because Melchizedek is greater, then that makes Jesus that much greater than anything the Old Testament could bring. And then he goes on further, because no preacher is ever satisfied to just make his point. He needs to drive his point. So he says, and they truly, speaking of the Levites, were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Hey, a priest would come, he would live, he would die, and a new priest would have to take his place because they were mortal. But this man, Melchizedek, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable or non-transferable or non-expiring priesthood. Now, at this point, it becomes exclusively about Jesus and no longer at all about this man, Melchizedek. And what the writer here is saying concerning Jesus Christ is that not only is he a priest that is greater than the priesthood of Levi, but he has the endorsement and the oath of God that he will stand as a priest forever. And because he's a priest forever, his priesthood is unchanging, non-transferable, and non-expiring. It goes back to the first sentence that he, he, he framed in the beginning of the chapter when he said, for this Melchizedek, abides a priest continually. That Jesus is a priest that is continual. That's the interpretation. So we've seen what? We've seen what it means. You say, what in the world does this have to do with my life in this era? I'm not a first century Jew being tempted to turn back into the Old Testament system. Very glad I came tonight and know these things now. But what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you and me. And here's why, as he gives us the application now in verse 25. He says, 
Wherefore, because of all of this, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. What Jesus is is able to do now, it says that he is able, that word means that he is competent, that he is sufficient also to save that salvation, and then to, it says, the uttermost. And that word means unto perfection, or unto the furthest possible point, those that come unto God by him. And he says, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. And he says, for such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. And so he, he gives us, gives to us these things about Jesus in all of this. Isn't it an amazing thing to, to realize that Jesus is praying constantly for you and I? That even right now, at this moment, Jesus Christ is interceding on, on our behalf. I mean, if you have Jesus praying for you, what an amazing, remarkable thing. He says that he does those things. He saves us to the furthest point. He intercedes for us. But then he tells us who Jesus is and why that's so significant. He tells us, first of all, that he is holy. That Jesus is holy in verse 26. The word holy means set apart. It means that he's different than anything else that exists in all of the universe. And that in being different, he is set higher. That Jesus is higher. He's holy. He's different. He tells us also that Jesus is harmless. And the idea behind the word is that Jesus is absolutely safe and trustworthy in all things that I would commit into his hand in making him the priest of my life and the Lord of my life. The word also carries with it the meaning transparent. That he's harmless. And you, you know, you get the, um, you know, the idea that there's, there's someone that wants something from your life. You know, we're in an election cycle right now and, and someone wants your vote. And so in order to get that vote, in order to, to, to gain your confidence so that you'll place your trust in that candidate, they say things to you that they're seeking to resonate with the way that you are or where you are in life so that you might come to the conclusion that that person is in alignment with me. And so I'm going to put my trust in that person based upon the, 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 the picture that they're giving me of themselves. But the problem with that, that we all know, is that there's no transparency in any of that. So there's no way that I can know whether or not the things that person is saying to me or what they're putting themselves forth to represent, if that actually really represents what's best for me or what I need or even what I would want within my life. But what the writer is saying here concerning Jesus is that everything that Jesus has put himself forth to be and everything that he has declared himself forward to be is absolutely harmless. That there's a transparency in it. That if he says it about himself then that's who he is. If he says that he's able to do these things within our lives, then he's able to do these things within our lives. He's harmless. He has an absolute perfection associated with himself. The third thing that he gives in description of who this man Jesus is, is that he says that he's undefiled. And the word means there that he has a perfect track record and that he's never dropped the ball. It speaks of a moral blemish or a reproach that could be placed upon someone's life because of something that they've done. 
Meaning that they, they've, they've, they've got a resume and they've done so much in their life. They've accomplished so many things. They've done so many things. They've lived so long. And, and along the way, there's, there's all of these accomplishments, but there's also, these are the bad points. This is where he's fallen short. This is where his intentions didn't quite match up with uh, his actions. There was a misalignment between the two things. And though maybe there was a good intention, he wasn't able to perform that thing that he initially intended and set forth to do. And what he's saying here concerning Jesus is that he is undefiled. His record is absolutely perfect. He's never, ever, ever dropped the ball on one case or has his word failed in one thing that he has ever stated uh, that he would do in a person's life. There's not one time that you can point to it and say, what you did in this situation doesn't line up with what you promised or who you set yourself forward to be. He is completely undefiled. The fourth thing that it says concerning him, it says that he is separate from sinners, meaning that he is not a man, that he is un, uh, um unflawed, and he's not like men and women that fail to keep their promises. Did you know that every human being in your life is going to fail you at some point? If you make yourself vulnerable enough that they have the opportunity to. I guarantee you that any person, no matter who they are, no matter how long they've lived or where they come from, any person that you put your hope and your trust in is going to fail you at some point. Because it is not in us to be able to measure up to the needs that someone else has. But concerning Jesus, it says that he is separate from sinners. And the idea there is that he's not like a man who will let us down, who will fail in anything. He is unflawed completely. And then it tells us, fifthly, in verse 6, that he is made higher than the heavens. And what that speaks of is his rank and his authority. Now, we already know, we've talked about it in studies past, that heaven outranks earth. That's why when we pray, we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Things always originate where God is in heaven, and then they're established secondarily in the earth because heaven is the greater kingdom and it holds the higher authority. But what it says concerning Jesus is that his position is that he's exalted even higher than the heavens. So even though heaven has an authority that outranks anything that's in the earth, Jesus alone holds an authority that even outranks anything else that's in heaven. Meaning that, that when we come to him, or that when we put our trust in him, or when he decrees something, there's nothing that can overrule what he has set forth according to his plan to do. He's higher than the heavens. There is no authority that goes higher or beyond what he himself Holds. And then number six concerning this person and who he is, is given to us in verse 22, where it tells us there, I'm sorry, it's not verse 22, uh, it's in verse 27, where it says that he needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did, not, not for his own, but for ours, once when he offered up himself. And the idea behind this here concerning this man, Jesus, is that he is sufficient to put away our sins once and forever and that he's willing to do that and he demonstrated his willingness to do that and that he laid down his very life in order to do it. Now, those priests in the Old Testament, they would bring a lamb. They would bring a bull or a ram 
or they would burn incense, or they would sprinkle blood upon the, the, the altar, or upon the Ark of the Covenant. They would fulfill the ceremonies. But Jesus did greater than them in that he didn't bring a lamb, he was the lamb. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And that, for you and I, is the confidence. If he was willing to do that, for he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? That if Jesus was willing to lay down his life in order to show himself willing, then we can rest in confidence that these things are going to come to pass within our life. And thus, he says, in conclusion, in verse 28, For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, makes the Son, who is consecrated then, forevermore. His priesthood is an eternal priesthood. If, if, if you or I were to go to a doctor, and, and every one of us uh, from time to time we have to go to a doctor, we have a certain um, kind of unspoken expectation that we're going to uh, um, bring with us when we go into that doctor's office. We're going to expect that that doctor has an education. I mean, you wouldn't want to go to a doctor that didn't uh, know a thing or two about the human body. Uh, you, 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 when you see the diploma on the wall, then you want to rest in confidence that that comes from an accredited place and, and that there's a, a, a body of, um, of mature doctors behind this doctor that's ratifying his ability. And so you're hoping and you're assuming that he knows something about the human body. You're assuming that he knows something about your condition. You're assuming that he knows how to treat the condition that you are bringing to him, hoping to, to find a remedy for when you bring it. You're expecting that he has a track record, that there's some patients that he can point to and say, yes, I've done this before, and I've seen this, and this is how we treated it, and these are the results, and this is what I'm now going to do in your case and in your situation, and, and we're, we're expecting fully that the outcome for you is going to be similar to all of them. And, and you want to hear and see all of those things when you go, and as you observe all of that and take it in, you slowly get the sense that you're in good hands, hopefully. And you begin then to relax. And what you do is you place your trust in that doctor that he has then the ability to do what it is that he has put forth that he can do within your life. Now, if he can't do any of those things, or if he can maybe do some of those things, or if he's not sure about it, then what that makes that doctor is it makes him unsafe and it makes him irresponsible. Both of those things are true about a doctor who can't do what it is that he's put forth or said or that you've come to him in order for him to do. You want to know that the doctor is able to perform the procedures that you need done within your life. There's some people that are here in the church that you are foster parents or you have been foster parents at times. And you know if you've been a part of that program, then there's an extreme vetting process that you have to go through in order to be approved in order to have foster children entrusted into your care. And the reason why there's such an extreme vetting process that goes into that is because the people that are handing these lives into your hands in order for you to oversee them, they want to make sure that you're able to raise these children or at least care for them for the period of time that you have for them. And if they were to give these children into your care and you were not able to take care of them sufficiently, then that would be an unsafe environment for those children and it would be irresponsible for you to be making the application. 
And so we understand that in this world that we live in, there are expectations and abilities that are attached to the titles and responsibilities that, that, that we have, no matter how big or small that they are. Now let's take that for one minute and let's attach that to God. What kind, what kind of responsibility does it carry to be called God? Let's just think about that for just a minute. You made the whole world and you spoke the whole thing into existence. And you created the dry land and the birds and the fowls and the herbs and the trees and the food and all this whole thing. And you did all of that, you made all of that so that man would have a decent place in an environment where he could live and survive. That's, that's a lot that God did right there. And just making a place for man to be. Then you make the man. And in making the man, you're making, and when I say man, I think you, you know, don't pull the gender thing, please. Human. Not going to say Hugh again. I'm just going to say man. But I love women more than men. But all the systems that God made when he created that man, the physical things that make us what we are, the mental and emotional invisible things that make us what we are, our mind and our personality, the spiritual capacities that we have to know him, to understand truth and apply it to our lives and to reason and think. God made all of these systems. And then God made, made these incredible claims that he would be able to do within our lives. He called himself our shepherd. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm sufficient and I'm able to lead your life. I'm able to bring you from where you were born to what you were destined ultimately to be and where you were ultimately destined to be. He promises that he's going to provide every step along the way that not once will the righteous be seen begging for bread, them or their descendants. He makes all of these incredible claims and promises that he is the Lord, our healer, that I'm the one who heals all your diseases. I'm the Lord, your peace. He promises that he's the one that has the power of redemption, that it's in him to forgive our sins and to bring us back into a right, right relationship with himself. I mean, think about all of the claims and the promises that God has made. How about this one, Romans 8.28? And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. That's a claim that God has made. He has made that claim upon every one of them that put their faith and their trust in him and declare their love to him, that he is able to work every single situation for the good. Now, what does it require for a being, in this case God, to be able to fulfill all of those claims. You have to know a thing or two about people, don't you? You have to know a thing or two about an individual life. You would have to know a person so well that you'd have to know things about a person that that person doesn't even know about that person. And those are the things that God knows. And he says this to you and me. He says, I am able to save you to the uttermost. I am able to perfect in your life everything in your life that needs perfecting and that whatsoever you choose to place your confidence and your trust into my care, I'm able and willing to do greater in your life than you would be able to do with your life. That is the promise and the declaration that God makes upon our life. And what he asks of us is that we would trust him with those things and then leave those things within his hand because he is competent. 
He is able to save us to perfection. He is able to deliver us from all evil and protect us from temptation. He is able to perfect every situation within our lives. That's his promise in his declaration. And you know what the only word in this whole entire chapter of man's responsibility is in the whole equation? He says it, I think it's in verse 26. He says, he's able to save to the uttermost, it's verse 25, them that come to God by him. That when you and I bring the contents of our life to God in the name of Jesus Christ and trust him with our lives there, that he is able then and willing to do all of these these things for us and in us. That's what he wants. That's the entire point that the Hebrew writer is making in chapter 7. He is able. And the word that he is speaking that to, or the, the audience that he is speaking that word to, is an audience that is facing the temptation to either turn their back on him or to mix their trust in him with trust in themselves or trust in something else. And so I ask you here tonight as we close, if you were to measure the contents of your life and the contents of your trust, how much of it is actually in the hand of God? And what part of it is still in your own? Well, I trust him with my salvation, but I don't know if I can trust him with everything. He's God. And he declares to you and me, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Trust in the Lord, the psalmist declares, and do good and verily you will dwell in the land and truly you will be fed. Trust in the Lord, fret not, he says, fear not. You know what the amazing and remarkable thing is about Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek? Just a few verses later, Genesis 15.1, which really just happens the very next thing. Right after Melchizedek meets Abraham, do you know what God comes and says to Abraham? He says, Abraham, fear not, for I am your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. Church, do you know that here tonight? Do you know that he is our exceeding great reward? They that put their trust in him will never be ashamed. Have you brought the entire contents of your life to Jesus and laid it out before him to trust him in it? Do you trust God tonight with your career, where it is right now and where it's going? Do you trust God tonight with your provision, where it's going to come from? Do you believe him when he says that you will never be begging for bread? Do you trust God with your marriage? Two lives that don't make sense to each other on purpose, ordained of God, put in a room and then the door shut. God just watches. Let's see what happens now. And you think this is never, ever going to work. But he says it will. Do you trust him tonight with your health? Do you trust him wholeheartedly with his timing for the things in your life that don't make sense to you? His word to you tonight is that he is able and that he is able to save to perfection those that come to God by him. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this great high priest that we have in the person of Christ. 
We thank you for the confidence that we hold that he is able and faultless and holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. And he laid down his life on our behalf and he stands a priest forever ever living to make intercession for us. And tonight, Lord, we make it our prayer as your Holy Spirit searches our heart that may every area of our life be fully entrusted into your hand. For we are dead and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So again tonight we pray, be our Lord, be our Savior and our God. Let us know who you are. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.